Well, uh, the last handful of weeks, we've been talking about the common wounds that every guy faces. We've talked about the father wound. We've talked about the mother wound. Uh, Brett talked about the loneliness wound. And actually, we've been talking about the broken view of manhood wound this whole time. So I'm not even going to pull out and make that its own session. However, as you look through these, you might go, you know what? You know, it's nice to be here for the father wound. I know a guy who has a deal with his dad, but my dad's a pretty awesome guy. We have a good relationship. I know, I know some guys who have a, a mom wound. The mom is always harassing them. They talk to mom all the time, but my mom and I have a pretty good boundary relationship. You know, you might even have gone through the loneliness wound and go, I got friends, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm well connected. So I don't have that. And when it comes to the broken view of manhood wound, you might, you might even go, you know, I feel like I've, I've got a pretty good bounce. However, this one, this soul wound, or some might call it a heart wound, this is something every single guy can relate to. Those other previous four, you might go, that's good to know. It helps me help other guys. This one is the kind of thing diving into that will help all of us, no matter where you are in life. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a church setting, didn't grow up in a church setting. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a a, a, like a well-balanced, like Christ-honoring home, or if you grew up uh, amongst people who rolled their own organic tobacco that they grew someplace in a greenhouse, right? It doesn't matter where you came from. This last wound is the kind of wound that all of us can relate to. For instance, have you ever, have you ever asked yourself, why did I do that? Or why did I say that? Have you ever at in any point in your life gone, oh man, why did I say that? For you married men, it probably was yesterday at some point, right? It's probably a day-to-day basis. Why did I say that? I've been married 23 years, and still, I will mark it in my mind. I don't do it like when I was newly married, it was like hour by hour, I would say something like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Now, it's a semi-annual occurrence. It's sort of like the, uh, the semi-annual sale at Macy's. It just sort of happens without any expectation. There it is. Oh, why did I say that? But if you have ever said, why did I say that? You, maybe you made a foolish purchase. You bought something, overextended yourself economically, or maybe there was an offensive remark or a stupid remark you made. It doesn't have to be in your married life. If you're, it could be at work. It could be with a colleague. Or maybe just some impulsive act. You did something and it cost you. It cost you a friendship. It cost you some peace in, uh, in your home or at your place of work. It cost you some economic peace. For some guys, they do something so stupid and they realize later this is going to take years to crawl out from. And if you can relate to that, you can probably relate to this, uh, this passage of Scripture right here. I better get my glasses. You can probably relate to this. This is what the Apostle Paul says. This is written in the Bible. He says, I do not understand what I do. This is in Romans 7, starting in verse 15. He says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Now this is from Paul. This isn't from some just, you know, slacker dude that got caught on a hot mic. This is from the Apostle Paul, intentionally wrote this in what arguably is his finest written work ever, the book of Romans. And he says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. What I do, uh, but what I hate, I do. And if I do 
What I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That's tough stuff right there. Good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. There's your words of encouragement for the morning. We can all go and be filled, right? You know, you read that and you're like, oh, man. And this is what Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights leader, but Martin Luther, who Martin Luther King Jr. was named after, but Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, he, he had a term in Latin. It was simul justice et precator. There's your Latin for the day. It means simultaneously justice, saint, and precator, sinner. That was Luther's idea, that we are simultaneously, we have the potential to be saints who are dedicated to God, and at the same exact time, we can be sinners that defy the very commands of Scripture. And this is interesting. Paul says something here that is easy to miss, because you could kind of get lost in the paragraph and debate it, discuss it, without really seeing what Paul's getting at. First of all, Paul says he doesn't fully understand himself. He says, I don't even understand why I'm doing this. So the first thing is, is he didn't fully understand himself. You ever, you ever felt that way about yourself? You ever gone, why did I do that? I can't possibly be the only guy in this room. that I, I think we all, at some point or another, just give me a head shake of a, yeah, that's me. Sometimes I go, why did I do that? And, and the good news is, if you've ever felt that way, you're in good company. We all feel that way, but better yet, the Apostle Paul felt that way, which is terrific. Not terrific that he did things he didn't want to do, but terrific that we're humans just like Paul. The second observation here is that Paul was sometimes ashamed of his actions. He sometimes goes, I hate this. I hate, I hate what, I, what I hate I end up doing. I feel so ashamed of my actions. Now, that's a big admission. That's an important admission. If Paul can admit that, sometimes guys cannot bring themselves to go, I really am ashamed of that. They are ashamed of it. They just don't say it. And here, Paul says, I'm ashamed of my actions. And then finally, he says that he knew the problem was sin living in him. Sin living in him. And, and here we have this from the great leader of the early church, the author of a big chunk of the New Testament gone, I don't always get it right. I'm ashamed of what I do. And sin is living in me. And there is a concept that was all over the scriptures, but it doesn't get mentioned too much in our current culture. And that is this concept of sin. In fact, I don't think I give you a blank for it, but if you want to write this down, what we mean by sin or what the Bible means by sin, the old word just means to miss the mark. It was like a, like an art, a marksman with a bow and arrow who was like shooting a bullseye and he misses. He sinned. Okay, so it's to miss the actual bullseye of the thing. But it's far more than that. It's to, to fail or to be imperfect. In the Bible, sin has this idea of disobeying God's clear command. That's really in the Bible. So sometimes people are like, well, I really missed the mark. 
And in our culture, to say, ah, I missed the mark, that's a really easy way of putting it, to say, you know, I willingly disobeyed God here. That's really what sin is in the Bible. Not living up to God's standard, failing to live up to God's standard. Now, here's why it's important for us to even have this conversation, is that in our culture, we are completely comfortable with half the equation. Meaning, we're completely comfortable saying, well, nobody's perfect, right? I mean, you make a mistake and you go, look, nobody's perfect. You say that thing to your wife and she gets upset and your first thought is, hey, I'm not perfect. In fact, one of the arguments I used to make is, I'm better than most guys. Have any of you made that argument? There's at least a few of you, you know? I'm like, you know, compared to that bozo, I'm amazing, you know? I'm a good, good guy. You are lucky to have me. Did that argument work in your home at all? I quit using it because after a while I was like, huh, I'm going to have to find a new one, you know? It was like if it was like law and order, she would have been like, objection, and then she's the judge too, so she'd be like, sustained. So, you know, it doesn't work, you know? My home, we don't run a democracy. I'm going to ask Karen later if that's true. I think it is. Uh Anyhow, I kid, I kid. But, but we're comfortable with the idea we're imperfect. We're not comfortable with the idea we're sinners. So, I mean, you just try it at work. A colleague says, man, I'm so sorry. I blew past the deadline. Project is going to be a little late. And, yeah, exactly. That's the word. And just go, well, well, we're all sinners, you know, in deep need of redemption. You know, they will look at you funny. You might, depending on where you work, you might have a little time spent in the HR office over that, you know? imposing your religious views on others in your place of work you know even in my place of work i work at the church i might end up in the hr office like really bill you can't keep calling your staff a bunch of sinners it's theologically true but it kills morale but you know we we are so comfortable with imperfection we're not comfortable with sin and this is where we've got to get comfortable as men not calling people sinners but looking at the mirror and seeing in ourselves not just the imperfections that we're comfortable with but look in the mirror and go i am a sinner i have sin living in me sin resides inside my soul so question number one where did sin come from? This is the, we're going to work through three questions here. We're, going to, we're looking first is, where did sin come from? And for that, we go really back to the beginning of the book, Genesis 3. This is a really interesting story. Some people see in, see in this story mythology. In fact, if you look up Wikipedia or you talk to very modern, kind of more liberally-minded theological people, they'll say, oh, this is just a mythological story of a convergence of all these other mythological stories, except for the fact the New Testament treats Adam as a very real person. So I would, I would submit to you that if Paul sees Adam as real and if Adam is part of Christ's lineage, I think Adam's real. So here we are, Genesis 3. This is our first parents. The woman was convinced. The serpent, if you know this, you know the story. The serpent comes up to the woman and is like, hey, God told you you couldn't eat that fruit. Did he really say that? It's probably because he's afraid that you'll be his equal. And so the woman was convinced by the serpent. We'll just pick up right there at verse 6. She saw the tree was beautiful. And for the record, it was not an apple tree. There's nowhere in the Bible that says it was an apple tree. And uh, I think it was actually, I wouldn't have been tempted by an apple tree. I think it was like a Snickers tree or something like that. I mean, really, does, would anybody truly be tempted by fruit? I don't think so, you know. It, we know it wasn't grapefruit, that's for sure, you know. Like, that'll make you better. I don't care. You know, that, it could cure a disease. I'm not touching grapefruit. Uh, anyhow, 
It's probably one of those coconut things. They're pushing that all the time now. She saw the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt ashamed of their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden. And so they hid from the Lord um, Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He knew, by the way, in case you're curious, he knew. He replied, I heard, uh, Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. And God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And this is the best part. This is like, this is so man right here. This is why this story is so believable. Because every man does this right here. What he's about to say to God Almighty is what every guy says when he gets cornered. The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and ate it. I mean, you look at Adam's actions here. He lets the woman sin. It says, you know, she gives Adam fruit the man who is with her. Now, we don't know if he was with her during the conversation with the serpent the whole time. Some, many say he was, and some say, no, just during that part. Either way, he knew that fruit wasn't supposed to be consumed, and so he lets the woman take the fruit. And then he disobeys God by taking the fruit himself. She's like, this tastes good, and he's like, that sounds good to me, so he tries it. And then he does what every guy does. He blames the woman, and then he blames God. In other words, a guy typically, the average guy, finds somebody to blame. So if you have children in your lives, you have a, a home, you know, with wife and kids, you know this is, mo- now I'm going to speak stereotypically, so forgive me if this is not reflective of your home, but this is like many, many men I talk to. If the kids do something wrong at school, get a C when they should have got an A, back talk to teacher, the woman goes, oh. I'm a horrible mother. I've done something wrong in raising these children. Now, she might be very upset at the kids, but in her heart, she's like, this is a reflection on me. And the average dad's like, what a lousy kid. <laughs> you know, reminds me of me. Or the kid, or dad's like, man, he's, hey, he's running with the wrong crowd. Pretty tough second grader, you know. <laughs> that's, that's what happens. Dad blames, woman goes, it's my fault. Again, please forgive me for the stereotype because not every woman, there are women who blame and there are men who go, it's all my fault. But what's interesting here and fascinating is when you ask yourself, well, who committed the very first sin? Who does God blame for the first sin being committed? You would think it's Eve. She eats the fruit. It is not Eve. This is the weird part. Paul tells us, this is Romans 5.12. He said, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. He doesn't say when Eve sinned, it spread to Adam and everybody else. He said when the man, now that is a weird one. Now I'm not saying the woman's off the hook here, this has led theologians to ask the question, what was the first sin? Was the first sin like eating the fruit? Because it's Adam, he's the second person to eat the fruit. Maybe, maybe it was that Adam didn't protect his wife from the serpent. Maybe, maybe his sin was coveting the fruit. He saw the fruit too, and he's like, man, I want that. And he coveted in his heart, maybe. Maybe, maybe 
uh, maybe his first sin was ingratitude to the Lord and he saw the woman eating the fruit and he thought, God said you eat the fruit, you die. I've always wanted a blonde and she's a brunette. So maybe the first sin was thinking God will strike her down and replace her with someone else of my liking. And then I'll introduce that girl to the fruit tree, you know? I don't know. What was, what was the, what we don't know. Was it him eating the fruit? Was it hiding from God? Was it blaming and lying to, to God? We, we really don't know with 100% certainty. The only thing we know with 100% certainty is that we inherit sin from Adam. That's the line. That's the perpetrator of it. That's the genetic kind of... Now, women aren't off the hook. In Psalm 51.5, the psalmist says, For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. So mom gets wired into this too. So it's not like... Some people take this and go, Oh, they have an exalted view of women and a low view of men. We ought to have a healthy view of both. Not a low view, but not an exalted view either. And so women play a role, but ultimately, ultimate responsibility rolls up to Adam. So where did the sin come from? Where does our sin come from? It comes from our, our father, Adam. Real person, treated like a real person in the Bible. Question number two then. What is the impact of sin on you and me? What's that impact? Perhaps one of the most obvious impacts is the skewed way which we see ourselves in the world that our, our perception of everything gets kind of jumbled because of it. This is how the great prophet Jeremiah put it in the Old Testament. He's uh, prophesying during the last days of the kingdom. He's like, he is there ministering under Josiah, an awesome king, and then every subsequent loser after Josiah. Guy suffers so much. Jeremiah's ministry, he starts out telling people the truth, and by the end, he's, he, he's so surly, he almost likes it when people don't like him. So he says this, he, he never pulled people to ask them how they felt about what he said. So can you imagine, this would be a good one, by the way, and if any of you have anyone in your life getting married, this is a good Bible verse for a wedding. Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Wouldn't that be beautiful at a wedding? A little scripture reading from the Old Testament. You're expressing your love for one another. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Good luck to you. Hope it goes the distance. You know, it, it's, that what's interesting is we live in a culture that says, what does your heart say? There's a, there is a um, uh, sound of music, you movie, the sound of music, if you're familiar with the sound of music. And sound of music's great. Uh, and there's this part in the sound of music that's completely fictional where, where the um, uh, uh, Julie Andrews, the, the, the baron asks her to marry him, and so she goes back to the nuns because she's a nun, and she goes to the head nun, and she's like, what should I do? And the nun says, what does your heart tell you? And they sing. But in the biography of the actual Von Trapp family, uh, Mrs. Von Trapp, she said, when I went back to the convent to ask the head nun, should I marry him? The head nun said, you wait here, we'll go pray, we'll come back and tell you what God said. So the head nun and the other nuns go, they pray, they come back and they say, we prayed and God told us you're to marry him and be a mother to his children and a wife to him. They did not talk to her about her heart. And we say in our culture, what does your heart say? I've got two girls in college. You know what question? I didn't ask them when they were choosing a major. What does your heart say? I don't care. You know what I told them? Daddy's not rich. Choose a profession that you can pay back your student loans quickly. 
that was, if, and if your heart tells you to choose a major that you'll be writing checks for forever afterwards, come live at home, choose a different major. But don't go away to school and rack up a whole bunch of bills. The news, the media does this all the time. They cover these stories. They ask people, you know, they're now a barista somewhere, and they go, you know, you're $75,000 in debt. But then they ask at some point, I'm not going to pick on any majors, but they'll ask what the major is. And anyone who knows is listening at that moment to the news, they're like, well, of course you can't pay that loan back. That's criminal. They have that major. That's not even a major, you know. But, but what your heart says is a wildly deceptive thing. It has great potential for good, but there are many a man who got himself in trouble because his heart told him to marry a woman that all his friends said, don't marry her. Or his heart said, even though I'm married, I'm now in love and God wants me to be happy. There's many a man who made a very poor business deal because it seemed right, even though good sense said, don't do it. And the heart in the old ancient Hebrew, it's the word leb, L-E-B in English, leb. And it has this idea of the, the whole motivation, your whole being. It's not just your emotion, but it's your wholeness. And so what Jeremiah is saying is this, the whole person, he's not just saying your heart, like your emotions. He's saying your whole body of decision-making is prone to make bad decisions. And so a couple bullet point fill in the blanks here is so one of the obvious impacts of sin is that sin clouds your judgment. Sin clouds all of our judgment. So we don't make the best decisions because our decision-making organ is not calibrated correctly. And then along with that, sin scars our character. Sin scars our character. This is what Paul says in Romans 3.10. No one's righteous, not even one. And, and righteous in the Bible is a huge word. It's this bigger idea than just being a good person. It's this right standing with God. It's that, it really has this idea of a perfection to it. And so what Paul's saying is that at the core of each and every one of us, we are lacking. We are imperfect people. And just in case that's not clear in Romans 3.23, Paul goes on to say, for everyone has sinned. And we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Every last one of us sinned. So it, sin clouds our judgment and it scars our character. So does that mean, does that mean that we're hopeless? That's the third question. Well, there we go. Clouds our judgment, scars our character. Does that mean that we are hopeless people? Good news, literally good news. No, we are not hopeless people. A couple more passages from Paul. Romans 5, 8, Paul says, But God showed his great love for us. Now, this is incredible. God shows his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. In other words, God loved us while Christ died for us while we were messed up, broken people. Sometimes we look at ourselves now and we think, yeah, it was worth saving. Not so much. God, in his, his incredible love for us, while we were still out there shaking our fist at him, ignoring him, blowing him off, sends Christ to die for us. That's remarkable. Now, it's not automatic, though. Some people have taken that to be like, that's awesome. That is so good to know that God... There are people out there that go, that is so good to know that God loves everybody, that Christ died for everybody, so I can then spend the rest of my life living an incredibly selfish, self-centered life, sinning, violating. It's fine. I'm still in because Christ died for me. Well, it, it's not automatic, though. 
It's the, the effects of this are not automatic. This is another section from Paul. He says, this is Romans 10, 9, 9 and 10. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you openly declare that Jesus is your Lord, in other words, he's your king, not just like, that's not just like a name for God, but that's like he is on the throne of your life. He is your Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that Christ literally came back from the grave. You'll be saved. For it is by believing in your heart, that is your whole being, that you're made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you're saved. So there's some, some response that's completely appropriate to it. You say it, you believe it. And then uh, another passage here is that therefore this is Romans 5 1 and 2 therefore since we've been made right in God's sight by faith we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us because our faith Christ has brought us into this this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we're confidently and joyfully looking forward to sharing God's glory now guys this is why we're bouncing around in Romans is that it's it's important for us to understand we are broken messed up people inside and out but that doesn't give us permission to stay that way. Because of what Christ has done for us and comes in, there's a reshaping that takes place, that we can have a peace with God positionally, but then he has this transforming effect on us. So that's why we can really live up and be the kind of guys God calls us to be. We're not just victims. Nothing more popular than guys getting together and going, I'm just such an idiot. Yeah, me too. And then the celebration of idiocy and then you depart your idiotic ways and go back and continue being idiots. That's like a normal thing that a lot of guys do. They high five and there's a, there's a bunch of train wrecks behind them and they're content with it because they're like, well, that's life. No, for the man who dedicates himself to Christ, there's transforming power that's possible. So let me do this. I'm, I have a handful of things of, you know, where, what do we learn here? And I'm borrowing, as you guys know, I'm borrowing from time to time from a guy named Robert Lewis who, who's written a bunch of books in Authentic Manhood. That's where this comes from. And these are just some conclusions before we move into our discussion time, and we'll fly through these. You know, he points out, and I think he's right, we're all dysfunctional by nature. There's not a guy that we bump into that isn't dysfunctional in some way, shape, or form. That most of my real problems, most of our real problems come from within ourselves. Most of those real problems come from within. They don't come from outside. They come from within. Which leads to the third issue, which is most of us turn to blame rather than take responsibility. It's far easier to say the problem is my boss or my wife or my kids or my parents. It, that is so easy. And it might be true. However, most of the problems that we really struggle with, they are coming from inside. They are not coming from the outside, which leads to a real issue that happens in our culture that education and improving our environment or self-understanding can't fix it. That's the solution that usually gets leaned into. Let's just get an environmental change. Let's change the color of a room, the lighting scheme. We'll educate. We'll have... A lot of you guys work in corporate uh, cultures where corporate runs into a problem and there's an in-service where they re-educate everybody on some manner of training somewhere. And there's a reason like a TV show called The Office became as popular as it still is because everyone who lives in some sort of corporate culture can relate to something like that because we're always trying to turn to some sort of 
way to fix the problem that's internal, but we try to ex- deal with it externally. Our sinfulness wears all kinds of masks. It is not easy to detect. There are some people that we go, oh, that, that's obvious, and it might be. But actually, we all wear some sort of mask. Sinfulness can dress itself up in a very religious mask. It can dress itself up in a very just kind of easygoing mask. It can be the buddy next door mask. All kinds of masks. A guy can wear all kinds of masks and look okay on the outside. But on the inside, there's a real corruption. And sinfulness wears masks, loves masks. We can't entirely trust ourselves. We cannot entirely trust ourselves. That... Now, this is clear. This is key here. It doesn't mean we can't trust ourselves. And there are some guys like, I can't trust myself. Well, you've got to work on that because we should have some self-trust, okay? However, cannot entirely trust ourselves. And then healing starts when we admit we have a problem. You know, there's a reason the 12 steps work. Some of you don't know this, some of you do know this, that the 12-step program AA came out of a church setting. It came out of a discipleship strategy out of New York City. And Bill Wilson, who founded it, credits Sam Shoemaker, a pastor from, at the time, New York, for much of what became the 12-step program. But it's a very Christian concept. Is The first thing we have to admit is we can't fix this on our own. We have a problem. And so those are seven kind of key takeaways in learning and then if we refuse, what happens if we refuse to deal with this? If we go, you know what? I'm not going to deal with the soul wound. I'm not going to deal with the internal stuff. I'm just going to deal with the externals. Well, the first thing we do is we disengage. Happens time and time again. We just kind of pull back and we disengage from key relationships. We disengage from even careers. We just sort of pull into some sort of shell Or we try to do the opposite. We take control. We rule over. We become control freaks. We become dominators. So we either hide or we try to be the sheriff and we come guns a-blazing. Or, and this one's just real tempting, especially for guys in their 30s and 40s, we get lost in career, status, success. We start chasing all of the other stuff that comes along with life and we find our meaning and value in what we drive, what we wear, where we work, the position, the, the placement of our office, all that stuff. Or, or we uh, turn to God and ask him to change us from the inside out. And then we invite other men into our lives and pursue real and lasting change together. So, fellas, as we move into the discussion time, there's a handful of discussion questions there. And we've got until 745 I've set a new personal best at getting us into discussion. We actually have 20 minutes today. How do you like that? That's, a, that's almost a miracle. Um, as we move into this time, just as a reminder, a couple things. This, we're done for the remainder of this year, January 9. We fire back up here. And then also, what I didn't say up front is if any of you are interested in serving on kind of the serve team of Man Challenge, send me an email. You can find me through the website. I'm just bsearch at crossings.church. Find, you know, just send me an email. I'd love to grab coffee with you and talk about what that might look like. A couple of the key different areas that we have for Man Challenge where you might find as an area of service. So let me pray for us, and then we'll turn over in our discussion time. Father, thanks for these men that carve out time early in the morning. We come in, and we, have, we just know that you have a message for us. So help us be the kind of men 
with open minds and open hearts so that we can clamp down on the truth that you have for us. We're grateful for the time you've given us today. We're grateful for the last 12 weeks. I pray for these men as we go into the holidays that we keep our eyes on you and we stay connected to one another so that we will honor you in all things. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. All right.